Amen. Amen. Well, hello, lovely people. It is so good uh, to see so many of you here. I have missed you so much. I hope the feeling is mutual. (laughs) Well, look, as we start to gather together once again, as we move forward into the new season that God has for us, we felt like the Holy Spirit has been asking us to rediscover what unity means. To, to rediscover afresh what being a one another community and church is. Plus, hopefully, over the next few weeks, with no restrictions in place, wouldn't that be great? In the last year or so, so many of us have felt so disconnected from one another. And for some of us, we may feel like we need a divine touch from Jesus to really bring the healing and the wholeness that we need to feel connected to one another again. Maybe some of you are here today and you feel disconnected from Jesus at this time, and maybe you have done over this year. Well, however we may feel in this moment, in order to see the revival that we're all longing for, we believe that we must live the one another life together. See, through everything that's happened, we're totally convinced that the antidote to our fallen world is radical devotion to Jesus and one another. Now, there are 100 one another phrases in the New Testament, and there's one uh, uh, thread, if you like, that stitches all these one another phrases together, and we find it in John 13, verse 34, where Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. See, by this command, Jesus is calling his apprentices, his disciples, us, to a supernatural way of life. And at the core of this life is unshakable trust in Jesus, for for him to manifest his life in us and through us. If you remember when we started this series a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, Sarah mentioned uh, the importance of us accepting one another. And then Phil spoke the following week about the fact we should teach one another. Then Sarah talked about the fundamental as a body to be praying for one another and taught us about that we need to build one another up. And last week, our amazing student pastor, Scott, taught us about our call to forgive one another. Scott talked about how we shouldn't carry offense, but we should lay it at the feet of Jesus. See, acceptance, teaching, prayer, building up, forgiveness is all part of the radical one another life that Jesus is calling us to. Today, as Beth said, I am closing our One Another series, and I want to talk about what Jesus told us is the secret to greatness in the kingdom, and that secret is to serve one another. Galatians 5.13 says this, it says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Whoop, whoop, that is epic news, right? 
So how do we do that? Well, it says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, and this is our key verse today, but rather serve one another humbly in love. If we think back over the course of our lives, we have to admit that we're only here as a direct result of someone else serving our basic needs. Like straight from birth, we were desperate to be served. We couldn't do anything for ourselves, could we? We couldn't feed ourselves, we couldn't clean ourselves, we couldn't dress ourselves, we couldn't protect ourselves, we couldn't even think for ourselves. And the only reason that we've made it to this point in life successfully is because people have served us in our weakness and in our vulnerability in those early days of our life. And of course, we we grow and over time we become more self-sufficient and our need to be served becomes less and less critical. But Jesus tells us the secret to true greatness in his kingdom is rooted in serving one another. Jesus said in Matthew 23, he said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatness of servanthood is true in lots of areas of life. Every good boss knows it's important to serve his or her employees well. Every good business knows the importance of serving the customer. I mean, it's absolutely vital to success of any business. But often I think that many of us have a wrong picture of what a servant is. We we might see a servant as someone who is weak or unimportant or the least in society. Well, over the next few minutes, we're going to look at a very small story in the Bible that will smash those false notions as Jesus exemplifies true greatness by an act of servanthood. We see this story in John 13, and we've got Jesus and his disciples. They're gathered in this room in a second story uh, of this building to share the Passover meal together. And the disciples don't know this yet, but Jesus, the next day, is going to die on the cross. This is, in fact, going to be their last supper. And at this last supper, Jesus demonstrates something so profound about what it really means to be great in his kingdom. And the first-hand experience of this event absolutely changes the life of the person who writes this down for us, uh, the Apostle John. And I want to suggest to us us this morning that servanthood, like in this story, can transform all of our lives the same way it did John's. Now there are five things I want us to see briefly in this story that Jesus teaches us about what it means to be a servant. Firstly, number one, servants love. To be a servant more than anything else is to love 
And Jesus deeply loves the disciples. That's what motivated him from start to finish. John 13, uh, verse 1, just at the end of that verse, it says this. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Passion Translation goes a little bit further, and it says this. Listen to this, exactly the same verse. It says, all throughout his time with his disciples, Jesus had demonstrated a deep and tender love for them, and now he longed to show them the full measure of his love. What Jesus is about to do for these guys was a next-level expression of love. And the thing is, he'd showed them love already, hadn't he? In so many different ways. He, he chose them. He, he taught them. He developed them as leaders. He did miracles for them and with them. But now he wants to show them, to quote the Passion Translation, the full extent of his love through an act of servanthood. And the word serving and ministry in New Testament Greek is exactly the same word. See, as we minister, as we serve one another, we must, like Jesus, be motivated by love. See, if, if ministry is not motivated by love, if it's motivated by anything else, by fear or guilt or, or whatever, it's not going to last. It actually wears us out and often burns us out. The thing is, how many of us can honestly say that over the time that we have been following Jesus, every single time that we've served, it's been purely motivated by selfless love. Well, I don't think any of us can say that, right? Because sadly, that the flesh gets in the way, and you and I can be a mess often of conflicting motives. But I think the most important thing is not that we're always perfect in our motives, but that we're growing in the motivation of love as we try to live this kingdom life. So you ask, well, where should we find this motivation to love John and to serve? Well, we find it in 1 John 4, verse 19, where it says, We love because he first loved us. And it's his love that feel, fills, if you like, the motivation tanks of our lives, knowing that he loves us unconditionally, gives us the power to love others unconditionally. Now, we probably won't always love every single thing we're doing when we're serving others. There are loads of things that I love within my role here at Coastline as I serve others. And there are for sure other things that I don't really love about serving others in my role. Let me give you some examples. There's no parents that I've ever met who say, the, the thing I love the most about being a parent is cleaning dirty nappies. They, they don't say that. There's no parents I've met that say the, the thing they love the most about being a parent is cleaning the sick out of the seams of the car seats when the kids are thrown up on a journey. They just don't say that. But we change nappies and we clean up car sick because we love our kids. 
But when we choose to love the people we're serving based on the love we've received from God, serving becomes a joy even in the tasks that we don't particularly love. So number one, servants love. The second thing Jesus teaches us in this passage is that servants know who they are. To look at this another way, real servants serve from a strong sense of identity. Our service should grow out of a confidence in who we truly are in God's estimation rather than who we are in the estimation of the world. We're not serving because we're trying to prove who we are or trying to get someone else's affirmation. We're serving because we already know who we are. Let's have a look at verse 3 and 4. It says this. uh, This is John 13, verse 3 and 4. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a a towel around his waist. See, Jesus is about to serve his disciples, and he does this out of knowing who he truly is, that all things are under his authority. He knew where he'd come from, and he knew where he was going. Now think about this for a second. In this precious church family, we have some remarkable, truly great servant leaders, And if you know these people, and some of you are thinking about them now, you'll know that they serve from a deep sense of confidence and identity in who they really are in Jesus. They know who they are, and they know whose they are. They understand where they've come from and where they're going in an ultimate sense. There's no ego. There's no serving for fame or validation These beautiful servants know the only validation they need, they've already got, because it comes from the Father by grace. So number one, servants love. Number two, servants know who they are. Number three, servants meet needs. (laughs) It's a pretty obvious one, right? But the core basic reality of what it means to be a servant is that we meet the needs of others. And Jesus here meets a very practical need. So what was that need? Well, I think we all know this one, don't we? It was that they had dirty, stinky, skanky feet. It was one of the most obvious needs of their day. Everyone walked around in the dirt, wearing mostly the shoe of the day, which was Nike Air Jerusalem's a.k.a. sandals, (laughs) which had little to no protection from the elements. The skin on people's feet would have not only been dirty, but dry and cracked and sometimes injured and infected. Have you got that picture in your mind? (laughs) Those feet? (laughs) Well, in wealthy uh, households of the day, There would have been paid servants that would have come and washed the homeowner's feet and their family's feet and the guest's feet. But in this story, there was no such person in this upper room. 
And it's interesting because when we read this exact same story from Luke's gospel, we actually find out that the disciples are having a ding-dong. In Luke 22, 24, it says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And this word dispute speaks of an intense argument. I mean, it's a borderline brawl happening on on the night of the Last Supper. And then if we continue in our passage in John 13, we read from verse 5, Jesus steps in and it says this, it says, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus begins to scrub the feet of these men in this upper room. I mean, think about this for a second. God Almighty stepped down into creation to meet the lowliest of human needs. In this, we get a glimpse of true greatness, and it's true greatness that Jesus is trying to teach them about what it means to be a servant. He's showing them and he's showing us what real servanthood and real ministry is all about. So we said, well, why did he wash their feet? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Firstly, we know here their hearts were proud. And secondly, their feet were dirty. Their hearts were proud. They were having this argument about who was the greatest. So Jesus demonstrates greatness to them by meeting a practical need. Remember, none of them really deserved his kindness in this moment in the way that he showed them. These guys walked into this upper room and they're kicking off about who's better than who. And sometimes I think the picture we have in our minds about the Last Supper is sometimes different than how the Bible communicates it. I think sometimes when we think of the Last Supper, we think of da Vinci's picture, this beautiful painting where it looks all serene and calm and holy. And I can imagine Peter getting up with his iPhone and going, right, come on, guys, Jesus, you get in the middle. John, rest your hand on Jesus' shoulder. Everyone look interesting. Smile. And then then they take the picture, and it looks like, I think we've got it up there. (laughs) When really, there's tension. There's anger. There's ego. There's testosterone flying about, which I think actually shows us afresh that even though the disciples have been with Jesus for three years, they still quite clearly didn't really get it. They didn't really understand what was going on. So servants love. Servants know they are. Servants meet needs. Number four, servants don't discriminate who they serve. I mean, if I was Jesus in this situation, I'd have been like, you lot are acting like a bunch of numpties, and I'd have just shut this party down. And I'd have just gone somewhere and chilled and rested, knowing that the next day I was going to face a brutal death. But he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't discriminate. In fact, the unconditional love of Jesus runs so deep that he even washes the feet of a guy named Judas Iscariot, who literally is hours away from betraying Jesus into the hands of his enemies. We see it in verse 2 here. It says, The evening meal was in progress, 
And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knows that there's a traitor in his midst. But that doesn't stop him from serving Judas exactly the same way that he serves everyone else. Now, a lot of service in today's world is often wrapped up with a careful calculation of, well, what am I going to get out of this? We see it in families, we see it in friendships, we see it in businesses and relationships, and of course, we see it in churches. But what Jesus reminds us here is that true servants do not discriminate on the needs of those they're going to meet. And here, Jesus is the prime example of this. He's about to be sold to his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus still wraps the towel around his waist, bows down, and washes his feet, knowing full well what is coming. And not only that, but Jesus also bows down to wash Peter's feet. And we know that pretty soon, Peter is going to disown him three times before the rooster crows. The point here is that people are going to fail us. But clearly, we shouldn't let their failure or our disappointment in them stop us from serving them. So servants love. Servants know who they are. Servants meet needs. Servants don't discriminate. And lastly, and arguably the most important thing that we can learn from Jesus when it comes to serving one another is that servants are humble. The biblical word for humility means to stoop low. In fact, in the Old Testament, this is exactly the picture that God uses to express what grace looks like. The closest word we have in Hebrew for grace is tied directly to humility, and it literally means to stoop. And this is what Jesus did for his disciples. He stooped to meet their needs. See, stooping low to serve others actually brings us right back to that first verse, our key verse today in Galatians, which is serve one another humbly in love. See, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Rather, humility is thinking of yourself less. And I hope for all of us over this last 18 months during this pandemic that we have been forced in some way to think of ourselves less and to think of others more. Our friends in the NHS, our friends that have had COVID, our friends that currently have COVID, our neighbors, the vulnerable, the people who are in the more at risk categories in our communities and our neighborhoods. And that is such a good thing. The last year has forced us to understand that church is more than an event or a production. It's not about a consumeristic mentality where we look at church in the same way that we do Argos or Tesco or Amazon, that somehow church is just a dispenser of programs and goods and services to meet our felt needs. 
but rather that church is about a group of people coming together in diversity and calling for the purpose of serving one another with grace and love and winning this world to Jesus. The best way in this church to guard against becoming a backseat driver or becoming just a critical observer, the way to avoid just becoming a taker and a consumer of church is to become a serving participant of the body of believers. We believe that as we serve one another in love, we're going to wake up this broken world to the glorious reality of freedom, of love, and of hope that is found in Jesus. So let's look to the example of Jesus here in John 13 as we together in the coming weeks and months discover what it means together to live this one another life. Amen? Amen. Amen.